welcome to the edition podcast. I'm your host, Charlotte Henry. And as the year comes to an end, I've got a bit of a mini series going on, bringing in various experts to give their thoughts on what the year ahead might look like in the world of media. We started off last week with Brian Morrissey. It was a great show. He didn't give us that much cheer, though. We tried to end on a positive note, um, but you should check it back and give it a listen if you missed it originally. This week, I'm delighted to be joined once again by Mark Stenberg, who is the senior media reporter at Adweek. Welcome back, Mark. Are you going to bring us some joy and positivity and things to look forward to in 2023? I think we'll. I'll try and sprinkle in some some notes of optimism, but it's it's not a, a wholly optimistic set of predictions. I have to be. I have to be honest. Okay, look, sprinkling. I'm taking at the moment. It's fine. So, I am going to start pushing you. You know. Bit on, bit on specifics. Brian was very resistant. He, he said he wouldn't give me timetables, but I'm going to push you a little bit. So what do you think 2023 will look like in the media world? Particularly, what kind of moves do you think publishers will make? Yeah, so I mean, I think I, I kind of came up with a few predictions um, about some of the big things that we might see coming next year. And most of them are, as you would imagine, continuations of pre-existing trends, but I think they're going to ramp up for various reasons. Whereas like uh, maybe a few of these trends are a little bit out of left field and sort of predictions that I'm making, not based on uh, a bunch of evidence, but more like a sort of series of uh, Listen, Mark, anyone, you've been on this show before, you've listened to the show, you know we don't need evidence. I'm all here for wild, <laughs> unthought through predictions. Please continue. Well, so I think the first thing, and this is like very fresh in my mind because I've been doing a fair bit of reporting on it, uh, and there was this BuzzFeed news just from earlier this week uh, where they announced that they're cutting 12% of their staff, and one of the big things that they cited was this pivot to vertical video uh, that We've comes had the from... the original pivot to video, which BuzzFeed yeah. really got involved in, loved it, and yeah. now they're cutting staff because of another pivot to video, but this is the kind of YouTube shorts... TikTok's kind of video you watch quickly on your phone, vertical video. Yeah, well, and so there's sort of like video plays into sort of two of the the, the main predictions I wanted to to go over. But basically, what's happening is like it's a similar story. Publishers are saying, where are audiences? Where are people consuming content? Increasingly, obviously, they're consuming it on TikTok, and now all of these other social platforms are you know contorting themselves to become more like TikTok. So video, in that sense, is taking a stranglehold over social platforms. But it's also there's sort of a dual revolution going on because you have the move from linear television to you know CTV connected television uh, that's really making the barriers to entry to be a sort of video company far lower. Uh, and that's encouraged some publishers with video producing capabilities. I wrote about like Condé Nast and Vice Media and Tastemade and some other companies like that to really say, hey, we already have a big library of video content. Why don't we try and get it into the CTV space? Then we have kind of another touch point for advertising. Uh, so I think that we're going to see publishers embrace both long form video to populate their CTV presences and continue reaching people on YouTube and things like that and through streaming platforms paired with uh, a sort of simultaneous embrace of vertical video. So both of these trends working in concert are going to result in video just becoming a far more prominent part of publisher strategies. But as you noted, and as I noted, and everybody in the media industry knows, there was a very ill-fated pivot to video several years ago. And so everybody's kind of moving into this um, fully aware of the fact that, you know, fool me once, shame on shame on you type energy going on. Um, mm. Everybody's, you know, sort of pretty 
confident that it'll be different this time, but uh, you know, the skeptical among us are not so sure. Excuse my cynical laughing in the background. Um, by CTV, you're talking about something I was moaning at you before we I hit record, which is kind of connected TV, the apps that we all now have for st- various streaming services and other, you know, including things like YouTube on our televisions. Exactly. Or, you know, airplaying, I guess, one of those apps to a TV, things like mm-hmm. that. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, there's all manner of streaming services, which we've covered extensively at the edition. Um, and of course, yeah, you know, YouTube is still... I find it amazing. This is a complete tangent, but I find it amazing that actually with all the kind of trends and, you know, pivots and all the other things that we've experienced in the broader social media space, YouTube just remains so fundamental to the creator economy and now the more mainstream publisher economy. Yeah, I feel like YouTube has been such an interesting case study when it comes to publishers trying to because so much of the dynamic with platforms has been, okay, we'll find our audience on the platform or or they'll find us. And then we want to get them to come back to our website and develop a relationship that's direct, whether it's the newsletters or it's just habitual reading or whatever the case is with video that's never been feasible. It's sort of years ago the the behavior surfaced such that people realize they're just going to go to YouTube for video. And if the video is there, they'll watch it. And publishers who put their video there and or publishers who put video on their websites just in vain were not able to really change people's behavior. There's just the assumption of if you want to watch video, you you go to that website. The best you can do is embed a YouTube mm -hmm. video on your website normally Mm -hmm. and hope people get to both things. Well, and that same dynamic is now playing out on CTV, specifically with like not so much the streamers like the Netflixes and the Disney's, but more of these these fast channels, the free ad supported television, um, where basically it kind of functions like a linear television offering. You just scroll through the shows. It's ad supported. There are different channels. Publishers like I just reported this week, uh, Warner Music Experience, which might not be a household name, but they just launched three new channels there. That's a really good example of a publisher saying, we have this video content. There are people scrolling these things aimlessly looking for new things to watch. Why don't we throw our content in there, potentially make a little bit more money, uh, reach a new audience, etc. Yeah. So you're the starting to see a similar there. behavior. Yeah, The content's there. Let's make money from it. Um, mm-hmm. Now, you you warned me this was a bit of a hot take of yours. Um, and is linked to what we were just discussing about. Uh, and you, one of your predictions was that actually we're going to see less traffic from publishers via social media. Now, I think there's a bit of a misconception. I certainly have fallen for this, that people think Twitter is the great converter and the great driver of traffic. And, and I've discussed on previous shows um, that that's just become increasingly not true. But it probably wasn't ever that true anyway, was it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, my understanding is that Twitter's always been a, a pretty negligible source of traffic, but of course, an important resource for journalists in another way. So still has a lot of you know, utility. Yeah, and, and gets feel, people, but... gets buzz around an article perhaps or things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but you, you're saying in 2023 that that not only is that going to continue, but you, you wondered if you know Google traffic, standard kind of SEO search traffic, was going to maybe go a similar route now i have to tell you i'm slightly unconvinced by this because i think people still do search for stuff and look want answers from google for stuff 
And some of that stuff is news content or just, you know, evergreen. How can I watch this show? How do I turn this on? How do I fix this? Mm-hmm. So I'm less convinced than you like this, but go on, justify yourself. Yeah. So this is a little bit of a, this is a reach of all my, of all my predictions. This is the least grounded in evidence, but. See, look, there, he's already backtracking. He's already backtracking. <laughs> there is ample evidence that social platforms, specifically Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Snap, all these things, specifically Facebook, are sending less traffic to publishers. That's, I've reported on that. That's pretty incontestable at this point. But that has hurt. But what would really hurt more is if Google began to behave in a similar way, because Google is responsible for far larger percentage of traffic for most publishers than Facebook is, which itself has been the largest referrer of social traffic. Um, But there's just murmurings that, you know, I'm sure you've heard something along the lines of Google has changed or Google is getting worse or whatever the case is. And it's anecdotal, but I was just having a conversation with with a publisher and they were sort of confirming some of these suspicions that Google in a bid to promote either YouTube Shorts or YouTube or Google Maps or Google Shopping or whatever the case is, or it's a litany of sponsored ads that come up when you search for something, basically has made it such that news content that might have surfaced really highly at the top of a search result is now appearing far lower on the page, if on the first page at all. It's just the visibility of it has been reduced in order to make room for some more of these Google in-house promotional products. And I think that this is going to continue, um, especially as the ad world gets a little bit more competitive as a result of retail media. I think Google's really going to be like, we don't want you to go anywhere else. If we can answer your query without you leaving Google, that's ideal. Um, And I think as this phenomenon sort of exacerbates, I wouldn't be surprised if Google begins to act a little bit like a Facebook in the sense of it sends less and less of its traffic to an external source and tries to just answer your questions while keeping you on its site. So that would be disastrous for publishers. And so uh, I'm interested in uh, identifying that early on to see if that does end up being the case. Uh, but yeah, if search ends up uh, sending fewer people to publishers, that could, again, result in a real sea change in how how they're supposed to get readers. Okay, so I'm less opposed to your view now, now that you've explained yourself. I've got, a, I've got a little bit more sympathy for your argument because actually I've experienced this. Searching for a couple of things... Um, the first things that came up were ads for rival services to the one I was looking for information about. And then scroll, you know, it did take maybe six, seven or more to start finding anything that was relevant to the query I had put in. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not sure that was a kind of more help guide I was looking for. I'm not sure I'm noticing it quite the same with news. You know, we're recording this on the day that Prince Harry and Meghan Markle's uh, Netflix documentaries come out. I'm pretty sure if you put Harry and Meghan into Google today, all you're going to get is news stories about the Netflix documentary mm-hmm. and takes on the Netflix documentary, um, which maybe you want to actively avoid doing. But anyway, um, you know, so I think with some news subjects, big, big news stories that are kind of dominating the discourse, I think probably we're still seeing for the moment not such drastic changes. Definitely. And I think like a probably a more likely uh, instance of this would be that 
traffic doesn't fall off by some massive percent, but perhaps these efforts to promote YouTube and YouTube Shorts and the Google, maybe it results in five percent less traffic mm. or seven percent. Which for less some tra- publishers would be a very big deal. But that's still a really big deal. I mean, because Google traffic is kind of king. Um, so any reduction in it is going to be serious. And I do think just anecdotally, like you're saying, and from what I'm hearing from publishers empirically, this is happening. Mm. So we'll see. How I'm, I'm also is. thinking, obviously, we're recording this right in the heart of the World Cup. And I'm thinking, like, if you put in any information looking for details about World Cup games, Google now provides you in within Google search information, you know, live scores, the day's fixtures. If you really start clicking, you can get information on the teams and, you know, pr- the team lineups, previous results, all sorts of information you can dig out without ever having to leave Google, as you're describing. And now, again, that kind of traffic might previously have gone to other publishers. But if you just see that quickly, what time does such and such a game start? What was the score in such and such a game? You don't need to take the second click. Yeah, Which absolutely. suits Google, but really doesn't suit publishers. Yeah, So I would say keep an eye on that because social traffic, that's one thing you could, you know, almost wag your finger at the publishers who built so much of their audience strategy on the the backs of a social platform. Maybe that wasn't, you know, forward thinking enough. But with Google, it's like everybody relies on it. So if that goes away, you really do end up having this question of how do you reach new people? Mm. Um, So that could be a existential threat. Yeah, and I should say, I in kind of full disclosure, I've written some of the you know match previews and guides on how to watch different sports games and stuff. And you know, it, you know, hopefully it does do well on Google. But you can see there's other information that Google prioritizes. And I guess if we were lawmakers and had authority over these decisions, which of course we should mark, um, the, you know, this is the kind of monopolistic behavior that makes lawmakers in you know, particularly the EU and America get quite twitchy, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Definitely. Well, and I think so to sort of move into this next prediction I have, I think it's very intimately tied to this based on my reporting and the things that I hear from, you know, various publishers that I speak with, two of the biggest focuses for next year are going to be, they're not very sexy, but events and newsletters. Mark, uh, I think those are terribly sexy. I can <laughs> basically think of nothing sexier than a newsletter particularly one that you can find at the edition.substack.com. <laughs> I mean, I was hedging. I also think they're very sexy, uh, exactly. but I've I've written and I've probably just written too many stories about like publishers and their expanded events portfolios. But I mean, it's across the board. Everybody's saying events are this, I mean, in a mist, uh, a sort of shrinking, slumping ad market, sponsorship demand for events continues to remain strong. The technology underpinning them the the organizational sort of infrastructure once a publisher sets up an events team then it behooves them to make use of that team with yeah. some regularity yeah. um so i think a lot of the, the the pieces have been put into play and i think next year we're going to see far more events semaphore i'm actually i don't know when this podcast is going to come out i'm writing a story on them they're hoping to have 25 percent of their total business come from events and that's sort of unheard of for a one-year-old company um it's only one years old I feel like we've been talking about it for many years. They're not even a year. You know what I mean? They've yeah. it's they've only been open for like two months and they've already had 15 events. Next year, they want to do 40 events. Wow. Um, so, and they're not alone. This is like happening all over yeah, the place. Yeah, for sure. Oh, are we talking about 
in-person events where other human beings interact with other human beings in real life a shocking thought or are we talking thinking about spending more hours on zoom yeah great i mean it's a bit of both isn't it it's exactly it's a diverse portfolio and it's not only like you can have a big consumer event uh you can have a virtual event a hybrid event uh something that semaphore is doing and i think puck does and like i wonder how common this is going to become are these like highly curated roundtable dinners of like 20 c-suite executives in an industry and they get together behind you know big oak doors in a smoke-filled room and talk about the future of the world those are becoming sort of valuable exercises for real b2b publishers mm -hmm. but whatever the case is a variety of events uh that seems to be a continued area of focus and the newsletters, like we were saying, which do have this advantage of being direct. Uh, they have this great contextual alignment. They have this naturally inclined and, and sort of opted in audience. So from an advertising perspective, still a really, really great vehicle there. Um, and I think- Couldn't agree more. I think people should take out really big <laughs> advertising deals with uh, newsletters of all sizes. Call me. And so I, you know, I don't think it's any surprise that as SEO and referral traffic get more and more complicated, publishers are really starting to put more of their eggs in the basket of like, let's try and build out these channels where we have as few intermediaries between us and our readers mm. as possible. Uh, and so a number of factors are kind of propelling this, but I would imagine those two lines of business just continue to go through the roof next uh, year. Yeah, I completely agree with this one. And I think actually there's also something about publishers um, getting a bit of confidence as well and realizing actually they don't need to kind of um, rely on third parties for their traffic and their connection to readers, viewers, listeners. They can have that direct connection with events, with newsletters. You know, you can have, I mean, I don't even know how many th newsletters, like things like the Washington Post sent out. There's so many day after day and, you know, I'm sure nobody's subscribing to all of them, but you sort of, again, a topic I, I've discussed on this show, you do start feeling like you know the person writing that newsletter to you. Mm -hmm. You know, Bloomberg is the same day after day, numbers, um, you know, just not numerous uh, newsletters every single day. You know, I look forward to Merck Gurman turning up in my inbox every Sunday, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that's really important. And I do think part of it is either confidence or you could flip it as panic but based on what you know the types of things we've just discussed previously about you know maybe google isn't doing quite what we want it to do anymore social media certainly isn't doing what we need it to do anymore let's just go straight to the people you know take it mm -hmm. direct to the consumer as the as the kind of name suggests mm -hmm. well and i said this on the actually the media voices podcast where we were talking about newsletters a little bit and I really believe that the email technology is just sort of the it's it's how newsletters are sent now. But I think it's just the beginning. I think that the concept of a directly of some sort of communication that goes from publisher to reader directly in a habitual sense without having to you know be sorted out by an algorithm. I think that that is a concept that can get far more sophisticated than it currently is in its in its form of coming by email. Um, so I think both the ad technology, the delivery technology, the ad creative, I mean, you see these publishers launching now that are newsletter first, and you mm -hmm. see what they're able to do in terms of creating these beautiful experiences. Um, 
I think that we're going to continue to see a lot of innovation in that department. And I think that bodes really well, both for publishers and consumers, because I think newsletters are like, you know, I'm sure you've said this at some point, basically the digital version of a print newspaper. You know what I mean? Like the regularity of delivery. Yep. I think that this could be the the sort of one to one uh, digital equivalent of that. And I think there's room for them to get a lot better. So that's something to look forward to. I, I think that really works, particularly even if you're part of a big, big publisher, if the person writing that newsletter has a personality, has a name that the readers can relate to and build a relationship with. I think mm -hmm. that can work really, really well. Um, I guess this leads us nicely to one of your final predictions that I'm slightly nervous about asking you. Mark Stenberg, can independent publishers thrive in a recession or just the big boys going to be the only ones that survive and make it through the next 6, 12, 18 months? Well, I definitely think independent publishers can make it. That's my my my, my last sort of prediction. Okay, thank you. Let's end there. Thanks very much. Okay, bye. <laughs> Great show. This was less about, this is more, I mean, this is kind of like in my mind, when you're looking at like the major premium publishers and the different strategies that they have, I feel like for the last several years, or at least in the mid-2010s, that was a decade defined by the digital upstarts who were going to change the world of media and the legacy publishers that were so far behind that they were getting lapped and losing business and becoming the laughing stock of the industry. I think that that dynamic has really started to shift in the last like two to three years. So this isn't necessarily to knock the digital upstarts and certainly not to knock the independent publishers, many of whom are doing some of the best, most innovative stuff. This is really just to say that I've sort of seen reason to believe very uh, anecdotally that some of these great classic legacy publishers have finally got the talent and the technology and they have the capital. And then on top of that, they have the brand equity. People know these names. I think that getting all of those ducks in a row is going to enable some of these publishers to really turn a corner and, and become far more dominant in the next decade and, and no longer be kind of the has-beens that couldn't transition to digital. I, so. I'm generally inclined to agree with you. Except all I read every day is stories about these major publishers firing loads and loads of people. I mean, I think about what's happening at CNN. I think about what's happening. I mean, that you know, as we mentioned earlier in the show, you wrote a story about 12% of BuzzFeed staff uh, being let go. And part of that was a consolidation with mul the multiple brands that that company owns, mm -hmm. um, you know, as your story laid out. But so I, I'm kind of inclined to agree with you because when people have less money to spend or less inclined to spend on, you know, test whether they like a small publisher or this and that, um, they're going to go for, you know, the New York Times or Wall Street Journal, the, the things that they really find essential to their media consumption habits. Mm. Um, you know, they're going to keep their Vogue subscription or whatever and maybe not pay X amount for a really lovely lifestyle Substack newsletter. Maybe. Uh, I mean, you can argue that the kind of independent lifestyle substacker provides more value, but you can see why people will make those spending decisions. I think actually the bit that's going to really struggle in the next 12 months is the bit in the middle. Mm. Um, because, you know, Brian and I were talking about this last week when we were trying to have some positivity and saying that, you know, small independent you know, I'm not only talking about subset, there are lots of ways people publish loads of great work independently, have a very low cost base. And mm -hmm. so 
it's much easier if they're doing good work to ride out the storms. The big, big names can survive for all the reasons you've just named. The bit in the middle, if it's having its ad revenue squeezed, and it's the easy bit really to remove your ad revenue from, if you're if you're an ad buyer, I think that could be the bit that is has the most difficult 6, 12, 18 months. Yeah, that I agree with. I think that's like to a degree. I mean, in publishing, there's like bundling and unbundling and there's niche and there's general interest. I mean, everything we kind of do on a on a barbell, it's either big or small or subscription or advertising or, you know, whatever the case is, it's always things work on each end of the extreme. Mm. But in the middle, yeah, the, the value proposition gets a little bit muddy. I mean, it's a, it is unfortunate to say Jacob Donnelly just wrote this really great piece that's sort of, you know, a little bit of a reminder of common sense knowledge, which is that it's hard to build a general interest news mm, publisher. I read that piece. And uh, we're sort of seeing that happen where it's like, you know, the scale plays of the last decade are not really translating in the way that we thought we they were going to. And, you know, the digital landscape is shifting and they've kind of been caught with their pants down a little bit. Um you know, the the middle has always been a tough place to play. I think the, the the way to do it is to start as some small, really, you know, indispensable publisher and just grow from a place of strength. Um, so you could be middle sized, but have grown from a really core, solid foundation. I think you're going to be okay if that's kind of your origin story. But if you're just sort of floating in the middle, trying to reach as many people as possible, but not indispensable really to any of them. Uh, that sort of like half, that sort of offering that doesn't really inspire devotion, mm -hmm. but was counting on half reaching a lot of people. Um, I think that that's definitely going by the wayside. Yeah, I think it, that's the much harder space to be. Um, yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. And I think that's going to be really interesting to watch in 2023. And they, they may be the people that find themselves squeezed the most. Well, th this has been a fascinating conversation i think i'm a bit more positive about 2023 having spoken to you if nothing else i think there's going to be lots of interesting stuff for you and i to write about in in the next year that is always true the media industry never quiet it's, it's never quiet it's going to keep us busy how many bobs are going to run disney you know there's all sorts of things we're going to have to look into it's very true i think also that i just wanted to make one final point just like a little bit Related to what we were just saying, I just saw this morning that Pinsky Media has acquired Art Forum, I believe is the name of it, a 60-year-old uh, trade publisher within the art world, adding it to the growing portfolio of trade publications mm. that PMC now runs, right? And I, I did a story a little earlier in the week, or maybe it was last week, on Variety, which covers mm. the entertainment industry and how it's had this the best year in its 117-year-old history. And I think PMC has this interesting, per, you know, a strategy that is really rooted in what you were saying and what I was saying about how do you be either small or large or something in the middle. I think what they're doing is they're buying these trade publishers and they're saying, look, we have this core audience of business and industry people who need the information that we're providing. So we've got that paying readership, but we can also layer on more consumer oriented reporting and writing and build up from that really core base. And I think that's just like a good example of like how you can take a smaller publisher that maybe reaches a tiny group of people like Variety or or, or Art Forum uh, and then, you know, achieve stability with that 
you know, basic readership and then layer on on top of it and really grow sustainably that way. So I feel like there are models for growing from small to large, but it just has to start from a really strong group of, mm. of dedicated readership. And I think, yeah, some of these digital publishers just didn't do that. Yeah, I think that's right. <clears throat> well, it's been fascinating to talk to you, fascinating to have a look in the year ahead. No doubt I'll drag you back on this show to see if anything we've said is being proved right in the next year. So I look forward to t talking to you in 2023. Until then, where can people keep up with your work, Mark? You've named a whole load of great stories that you've you've <laughs> written, and I, I've read them, and they are really, if you're interested in the media issue, they're fantastic stuff to dig into. So where can people find your work? Yeah, well, thank you. You can follow me on Twitter at MarkStenberg3, and I report for Adweek, so you can just follow me there at on my, my profile page there or subscribe to our media newsletter. Uh, if you want to go a step further. But yeah, Twitter is probably the best place for my daily reporting. I'll link to all that in the show notes. I'm at Charlotte A. Henry on Twitter. As I always say, if you're listening to this show on Substack, well, you know where to find the newsletter as well. So I hope you're receiving that. If you're listening to it in any podcast app, which is you can get the show in any podcast app where you normally listen to shows, uh, do head over to the edition.substack.com and subscribe and you'll get a reminder, an email reminder when this show goes out. You get two other emails a week as well. So come and join me there and even over on the edition.net where we're building up some of the blogging as well. So thank you so much, Mark, again for joining me. Thank you all for listening and I'll see you next week. Thanks.